0: My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples There they stayed for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to
1: God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that um, it brings such comfort and joy and delight. Thank you that it points us towards Jesus and what he is like. And we pray this morning you might remind us once again of why he is worthy of all praise. Amen. Well, can I ask you please to take out the leaflet that you're given as you came in. If you open up on the inside, you'll see there's a reasonably detailed outline of what I'm going to cover this morning. Uh, The entire passage is also reprinted in there, so you don't need to have both the Bible and that open in front of you, if that's a bit hard to juggle. And you'll notice this week that instead of a discussion question, I have homework for you. Yeah! We'll get there. Well, this series so far... Uh, You'll recall I've printed a few verses at the top left there, the grand opening back in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Uh, After the grand opening, we moved from the Word of God to the announcement of the arrival of the Lamb of God. Chapter 1, verse 29, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as a result, this Jesus has been building a following, particularly given his promise that his disciples will see even greater things. Chapter 1, verse 50, which is where we concluded last week and brings us, therefore, at the start of this week, to start of chapter 2 and point 1 on your handout, The Problem with the Wedding. The Problem with the Wedding. Let me read again verses 1 through 5. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus' disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour is not yet come. But his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, Jesus gone to Galilee, we discover. And on the third day, verse 1, a wedding took place. Now, without being superstitious or cute, Christians know that strange things tep- tend to happen on day three. Think of Abraham being tested over Isaac at the end of a three-day journey. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days. Esther went before the king after three days of prayer and fasting. And of course, as we know, Jesus will rise from the dead on the third day. Which means, I think, that we're already expectant, maybe excited that something might happen. Maybe we might see some of those greater things that have been promised. And yet, quickly, we learn of the problem with the wedding. Now, I've got to say, those are words no one ever wants to hear, the problem with the wedding. Uh, actually, this is a pretty awkward social disaster, isn't it? They have run out of wine. How embarrassing. I mean, if you were the host, wouldn't you just dive shame at this point? Imagine people thinking, oh, they tried to do it on the cheap. <laughs> this, of course, applies not just to a wedding, this applies to any special occasion which... You want to be just right. Uh, Most of you know that uh, last week my father's funeral was in Sydney. Uh, Thank you so much for your expressions of support. We've been very aware of the prayers of our church family here. Uh, Obviously for us it was a sad day, uh, but it was also a fine moment to honour my dad and to give thanks to God for his amazing life. In preparation for the funeral, uh, my mum and I had guessed that maybe 100 people would come to the funeral. So when, at quarter to the hour, there were over 200 people already in the church building, can I just say that for a moment there was a bit of panic about catering at the afternoon tea. Don't worry, it was all okay. There was more than enough food. But if you come back to the wedding here, this is a terribly awkward situation, isn't it? Out of wine already. And I wonder if, in fact, Jesus and his mother were related to the wedding party in some way. Maybe that's why Jesus' mother gets involved at this point. In fact, did you notice she is mentioned in verse 1 even before Jesus is? Maybe she's an honoured guest. But though she thinks her son can do something, Jesus is clearly not very interested in getting involved. Look at his reply in verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. A couple of comments. Uh, first thing is that when Jesus calls his mother woman, uh, that's not as rude as it sounds in English, okay? So he's probably not being particularly rude uh, or pejorative at that point. Nevertheless, his reply is a bit intriguing, isn't it? To just say, my hour has not yet come, well, I've got to say, it feels a little bit overdramatic, melodramatic and over the top, doesn't it? In response to the observation they've run out of one, my hour has not yet come. I mean, surely Jesus could have settled for something else, like, why are you asking me, Mum? I'm not a winemaker. Or, really, Mum, do I have to go down to the bottle shop to pick up more booze? Instead, it feels like Jesus is saying, don't bother me with these petty, trivial details. Or maybe Jesus is saying... People aren't ready for me yet. Uh, Which is entirely possible, I think, because when Jesus talks about the hour, the hour, it's like a big alarm goes off for us. And I say that because I've printed there on your handout. um, The word hour appears 24 times in John's Gospel. 24 times it speaks about the hour or the time or the hour. And I think what Jesus is doing here is that by saying my hour has not yet come, he's warning us against trying to set his agenda for him, against trying to change his timetable for doing things when he thinks it's right. The funny thing is, it does seem like the perfect moment to showcase some of those greater things that he had promised. And that's actually what he does next. Uh, even though we don't know exactly what his mother was thinking when she asked him, she knows her son won't ignore her request. Verse 5, verse five. she said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So, point 2 then, the incredible solution that Jesus provides. Pick it up with me in verse 6, printed there on your handout. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. The incredible solution that Jesus provides. Uh, There's all sorts of things I could say about this section. I could comment on the slightly dubious hospitality practices of serving the good stuff while everyone knows that you are and then saving the cheap, nasty stuff for the end. Uh, That's probably not the main point of this story. Without overanalyzing it, I do want to just showcase how extraordinary the miracle is that Jesus has performed. You can see it in three different ways. Uh, There is the quantity of wine that is utterly staggering. I mean, look again at verse 6. We're told that there are six stone water jars, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons. That's between 75 and 115 litres each. So let's say 100 litres on average, six of them, 600 litres or 800 750 mil wine bottles. 800 bottles of wine. It's staggering in terms of being over the top. And it's not just that there's lots of it, it's outstanding quality. It is, you might say, Grange-like quality wine that he has produced here, save the best till last. And, you know, I like to think that if I was one of the guests, I'd be secretly stashing one of those bottles under my arm as I went, as a memento of the occasion. And, of course, there's the, well, there's the quantity, there's the quality, there's the cellaring process. <laughs> it's instantaneous. Wouldn't that be a dream come true for a winemaker? No waiting around here. Now, my point is, clearly, it is extravagant. It is over the top in every way. There is no doubt that something miraculous has taken place. We'll come to the meaning of the sign in just a moment. But before we do, you'll see there on your handout, I've put a question. How are we moderns meant to think about miracles? How are we moderns meant to think about miracles? Because in many ways, this is the elephant in the room. Uh, This is the stumbling block for so many in our day and age. It's possibly even a hurdle for you. One of the biggest obstacles to Christianity, I think, is that, well, miracles don't happen. Not in a world based on science and fact. And so to claim that Jesus performs one right here at the outset of his ministry, it means that the Bible must be fiction or fantasy. It cannot be history. Well, today I'm not asking you to suspend belief. I am asking you to please start with an open mind. With the acknowledgement that, well, just because we don't know everything about the universe, what looks to be impossible might just be because we lack information. What's more, as I've said there on your handout, everyone has presuppositions. Everyone has presuppositions. If you are open to the possibility of a God who is not limited or constrained in the way that we are, then water into wine is not such a big deal. Not for Him. Uh, On the other hand, if you respond with, but there is no such thing as God, end of discussion. It seems to me that your presuppositions will prevent you from ever recognising his activity in our world. You will never be able to accept the possibility of the miraculous. Now, at this point, of course, I could digress into the endless heated philosophical arguments about the logical possibility or impossibility of miracles. If you want a good introduction... Uh, you could do no worse than to read C.S. Lewis's Miracles, which I've printed there for you, a reference there. Um, But instead, today, what I'd rather do is invite you to see for yourself, to read John accounts of Jesus' life, to take the time to investigate, to see if it has what I often call the ring of truth Because for hundreds of years, it has for billions of people. And I think that that means something, to know that others have carefully investigated and have come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And actually, it seems to me that if you're not willing to do so, if you will simply dismiss Jesus out of hand without taking the time to check him out, then with all gentleness... I do want to say that that feels a little bit close-minded given his extraordinary influence and significance across generations of human history. For me, this is something that I did when I was at university and in my early 20s, when it seemed right for me to consider if Jesus was who He claimed to be and if the evidence for His life and His death and His resurrection was credible. Can I urge you, if you've never done that, please do so. And the starting point would be to read the rest of John's account, the 21 chapters that make up this extraordinary narrative of who Jesus was. If you would like someone from this church to sit with you over coffee and just help explain some of the terms and read it through with you, please do let us know, either with that communication slip or come and chat with one of the staff or ask the person who brought you today. We can think of nothing better that we would love to do than help you to meet the one who we have been so privileged to meet ourselves. Well, point three, on the right-hand side of your handout, the meaning of the miracle, the meaning of the miracle. Back to John chapter two, one last time, verses 11 and 12. Printed it there on your handout. John chapter two verse 11. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed him. But after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brother and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. Let me say two things by way of try to make sense of what this miracle is all about. They're both printed there for you on your handout. Firstly, Jesus performs signs to reveal his glory. Jesus performs signs. To reveal his glory now what's helpful to know i think is that john's account the 21 chapters of john's gospel they're divided into two main parts i've given you the breakdown there in that little diagram on your page the first part chapters 1 through 12 are what's called the book of signs and the second part chapters 13 through 21 the book of glory the book of signs and the book of glory now from the outset actually we have been waiting to see jesus glory Chapter 1, verse 14, we saw this in the introduction. Uh, Here, John testifies that he has seen Jesus' glory. This is what we're looking forward to as well. And in fact, today's episode, The Water Into Wine, it's the first example of the connection between his signs and his glory. Chapter 2, verse 11, what Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And there will be many more signs to come, and many more will come to behold his glory. So John chapter 20 verse 30, we've seen this a few times in this series so far. Here at the conclusion, here's what John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book, but these ones are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, what we've been told is that Jesus turning water into wine, it's less a miracle that we might like to see repeated, like a, like a science experiment or a party trick. It's more a sign to highlight who Jesus is and why we ought to believe that He is the Messiah, the Son of God, who can give eternal life to all who believe in His name. You see that in verse 12 of chapter 2. Seeing the sign led to his disciples believing, sorry, in verse 11, even if it took them time to fully grasp who Jesus was. Thomas, for example, who we'll see throughout this account, he is famously full of doubts, even after Jesus rose from the dead, but eventually he gets there. Water into wine is less a miracle to be marvelled at and more a sign to highlight Jesus' power and identity. And so when he says, my hour has not yet come, when he says that he, saved the, it said that he saved the best for last and that he promises his followers they will see greater things, they're all different ways of saying the same thing. Don't be distracted. Don't be distracted by the razzle-dazzle of the miracle. What matters is who Jesus is. Water into wine... It's less a spectacular party trick. It's more a question for us. Who do you think Jesus is? Who is that man? And Lord, will you show me his glory? So, here's the homework. For this week ahead, what I'd love for you to do is take a little bit of time one day in the next seven and look for all seven signs in John 1 to 12. There's seven of them. We've already seen the first, water into wine. But I'd love for you to look through and see if you can find them and then ask, what do they say about who Jesus is? What do they say about who Jesus is? Okay. I think that sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? That's not too much to ask. There'll be a test next No, there won't. Um, why don't you have a look? Let me finish then, point to the particular significance of water into wine. The particular significance of water into wine. I want to finish by asking if there is any significance in Jesus choosing water into wine as the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And the reason I want to ask that question is because I've been wondering this week why he chose to use six stone water jars that were there for ceremonial washing why did he choose to use them after all this is me just making an observation he could have just refilled the original wine jars that had run out and of course being the son of god he certainly didn't need so many jars just to perform this miracle in fact in john chapter 6 we'll see that he feeds 5000 men plus women and children with just five loaves of fish five loaves of bread and two fish So he didn't really need these six huge stone jars just to make his point. So why did he use them? Why so many of them? Well, I wonder if, in a very unsubtle way, Jesus is actually making a point, and making a very profound point. It's a point, I think, that's related to the fact that the Jews... They were ultra fastidious when it came to ceremonial washing. About longing to be clean before God. See, by Jesus' day, the Jews had developed literally thousands of regulations to help them avoid ritual uncleanness or contamination. The problem was, none of them worked. That's why they had so much storage capacity on site, 600 litres for ceremonial washing. The Jews were hyper-aware of their sinfulness. And they were terrified of the risk of encountering a pure and holy God. But now, in John chapter 2, Jesus... The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He has come amongst them. And He's offering forgiveness for everyone's sin, for every sin they have ever committed. I actually think there's a bit of a showman in Jesus after all. Sometimes to cut through the noise, you have to make a really big statement to grab people's attention. It seems to me that repurposing those massive ceremonial washing jars is Jesus' way of saying they're no longer needed to make you clean. Well, they couldn't anyway. They're no longer longer needed because the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is here. And He brings a new and better way. One that is literally overflowing with God's grace and mercy And forgiveness for all who will believe in him. Let me ask you, what have you done to try to make yourself clean before God? What have you done to try to make yourself clean before God? Have you made strident resolutions that you will do better next time? Have you practiced self denial? as if self-abasement could somehow make amends? Are you trying to chalk up as many good deeds as you can to somehow balance the ledger and offset all of your mistakes? Have you tried bargaining with God to earn His favour? God, if you do this for me, I will do that for you. Or maybe, have you just given up trying? Because nothing works to take away the sting of your failings. Nothing can undo the consequences of your actions. Nothing can clear your conscience that haunts you every day. I want to say, and this is going to sound brutal, amen. You can never undo your past sins, but but because of who Jesus is and what Jesus does you can be purified and you can be set free from the burden of carrying them around each day and you can be made clean and pure and whole once again how not by gallons and gallons of Jewish ceremonial washing water that'll never work but simply by the precious blood of Jesus. Which is why we're going to sing in just a moment. What can wash away my sin? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. At the end of the day, I wonder if that's why this is the first sign that Jesus has performed. Because this is the starting point. This is the most important discovery for us to make about who Jesus is. He can purify us. He can restore us. He can make us whole again and reshape us more and more to be like him. Is there anything more intriguing or anything more desirable that might cause you to want to hear more? Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that because of him... Our sins can be washed away. And so we pray, this morning, whatever we know or have known about this amazingly good news, help us to be people who are overflowing with thankfulness and who seek to live lives that praise Him who is our Saviour. Amen.